0: bodyboard club podcast hosted tonight by myself chris nice and mike norman alex clark also joins us and will be producing and editing good evening chaps and welcome to another episode good evening how's it going mike tell us about tonight's guest
1: tonight we have josh kirkman joining us josh has been and out of the bodyboarding scene for more than two decades he has competed on the world tour quit the tour quit bodyboarding started up a bodyboarding podcast, hustled the Swedish government for cash, enjoyed a cameo on Tension 9, started back on the World Tour, championed environmental issues within our sport and being a vocal about bodyboarding challenges in general. Overall, an interesting character.
0: Awesome. I'm sure we'll dive into some of those topics in this episode. But without further ado, Mr Kirkman, how are
2: you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just... Um... Start. got my morning coffee sorted out, so that was pretty important. That was really important. Is my audio coming through all right for you? I'm trying to use some of my little tools here Yeah, my side good. for good. once. Yeah, yeah, it sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. Nice one cool. for
3: joining us, boy.
2: Yeah. No worries. Welcome. And- uh, Thank you. I'm thrilled. Brilliant. Better turn my phone off to...
3: It's a golden rule of the podcast, isn't it? you got to turn your phone off, right?
2: <laughs> I've been caught out myself many times. I've been caught out. Let me just do not disturb it. There it is. Cool. So who am I talking to? Who's Alex? Who have been? Who have I been messaging through Facebook, first of all?
3: Yeah, so it's myself. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, so chairman of the club. Um, Epic. Obviously, a lot of our events and that have... Um, Come to a halt this year because of COVID, and And we had a bigger, bigger than ever year planned. But, Uh um, kind of like, well, what can we do for our members? And we started Mm. doing a bit of a podcast, uh, just in like the UK and like, well, amongst ourselves first, and then the UK. Um, and then things have just like spread out, you know. We've had the Hubbard brothers, um, we've had uh, like Mark Russo, is it, uh, with a ball. Um, the big man. Uh, who did we have the other day? I, f- I forget yeah. the names. That Ian Campbell. We've Ian Campbell's had. been on. Who's yeah. who's that? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and who did we have the other week from Hawaii? I, I'm, I'm terrible. Danny <laughs> Kim. Yeah, Danny Kim.
2: Danny Kim. We well Danny done.
1: Kim, so yeah. yeah.
2: Well it's, done. It's That's cool. good. That was,
1: that was filmed in a, i think he's in a car park on his on his lunch <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Just talking into his phone, yeah. What it was beautiful? So I'm, beautiful. I'm, uh, I'm Mike Norman. I'm the vice. Nice Chairman to meet you, Mike. And you, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm one of the founders of the club, but cool. I'm, I'm uh, from England. I am so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I moved up here about ten years ago.
2: So the Welshmen let you in? They were, they were cool with you being in such a high position in their organization, even though you're from yeah. somewhere yeah, else.
1: Yes, they are. Uh, that's good. Yeah, it's uh, like I'm uh, quite passionate about bodyboarding from, yeah. you know, like from back home. But this like Wales is quite a small, sort of tight community. Mm. So me and another lad sort of brought it together and. Uh, Epic. Club's done really well in the last sort of, well, it's been the last sort of few years now. So cool. I'm trying to progress it even further. Awesome.
2: Awesome. We also
3: have Chris with us, who is moving yeah. to Wales by the end of next month. So.
2: Oh,
0: good on you. Yeah. The, the only problem is, is I'm one of the many South African members. I was so, about to uh, say. Yeah. We, we're muscling ourselves in, in everywhere.
2: Oh, <laughs> Especially done enough the... of that in Oz. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. So... Oh, cool. Cool, guys.
3: What kind of time have you got, Josh?
2: Uh, I reckon I've got a, a good hour if you need it. Like, um, is if that's satisfactory for you guys, um, I've got to get off to an osteopath at um, 9 a.m. my time. I've got a bloody bad back I've got to fix. So, yeah, I've got to go and get that done. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's 7.37 here now. So I reckon, yeah, big, easy hour for sure. It's only five minutes down the road I've got to go. So, yeah, it's sweet as.
0: Sweet. Welcome to the podcast, Josh Kirkman. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where in the
2: world are you? I'm, uh, Ed, first of all, very, very pleased to be on this podcast with you guys. I, I, was, um, I was a little bit, my ego got a nice little tickle when I was asked to join someone else's podcast. So it's a good feeling and I appreciate that. My ego thanks you for it. <laughs> um, I'm sitting in my little apartment with the camera pointed in the right direction so you don't see how messy my life actually really is. Um, and I'm in Foster on the New South Wales East East Coast. Um, It's the kind of area where I grew up bodyboarding, but um, it's also there's two towns here. It's kind of like a twin town city kind of vibe. So um, Foster and Tunkari are the two towns on either side of a bridge, and that's the area. Um, I'm originally from Tunkari, which I'm quite proud of. So I'm living in Foster for one of the, rare times in my life and it's actually, um, yeah, I feel a little bit out of my comfort zone because my beach is on the other side of the bridge. That's wicked.
0: It actually leads us straight into our um, our first question from, from Mike. Okay. Yes.
1: Okay. So if you could tell us about your early years as a Grom, mm-hmm. what was the bodyboard scene like back then? And did you have a local club?
2: Yeah, well, I did have a local club, but I, I think that is – 100% oh that beer looks nice um 100% takes a swig um that's great um a bit early for that here the the local club was really big when I joined as a kid and this must have been around 1993 94 um the significance of 93 is that that's when Michael Appleton Epo won the world title um for australia for the first time and i think that that had a lot to do at that moment with that um that push for kids everywhere in australia to get on a bodyboard um and to not only get on a bodyboard but also to compete and try and win stuff you know so so the local bodyboard club was quite huge when i joined i I would hazard a guess that there would have been over 100 150 kids um in that club at the time and And I think that, um, back then it was just, and you guys, anyone listening to this, who was bodyboarding in the early nineties would remember that it was just this feeling of, um, like this was a a growing sport. This was a, this was a, a sport that was cool. It was in the mainstream. Um, everybody was doing it. So it wasn't hard to get into as a young, you know, as a 12-year-old. Actually, I must have been 10 even at the time because I was looking up at the guys four years older than me and going like, I want to I be like them. They're cool. And this makes sense for me to ride a bodyboard um, because everybody else is doing it. So you kind of safety in numbers and you kind of follow the crowd a bit. So, so yeah, the scene around here was really um, strong at the time and um, there were a lot of great young riders who were just doing the craziest things, um, you know, um, doing the flips, doing the the big rollos, and all this kind of stuff. And, and that was the time when Epo was kind of releasing these moves, right? Like these ARSs and double rolls and backflips. So it was like a really important moment, I think, um, for the progression of the sport. And I definitely thrived in that environment. And I also thrived in the competitive space because I was a very competitive kid um, and I'm 36 soon 37 now and I'm a very competitive adult that doesn't matter what's happening Um, so I really thrived in that competitive environment and I really enjoyed trying to beat the guys I looked up to and that was definitely a theme that carried on for me from a very young age
0: sweet Um, how has it changed over there now is that scene still around is is it as big as it was or is it yeah, Are the clubs
2: still um, around? The club's still around. I actually just missed out on participating in the last local club comp for the year because I have a job in a local cafe at the moment and uh, it was just on Sunday that passed. Um, the local club has gone through its own ups and downs, like every everything in bodyboarding over the last, you know, this is coming up to, I just realised that, it's coming up to 30 years since I started in this bodyboard club. So it's kind of wild to even think that that's um, how long that that I have been involved or connected to it. Um, it's had its ups and downs. I mean, I remember back then when I was a kid, there wasn't a stand-up surfing club here, which seems ridiculous to even think that that was a thing or not a thing at the time. But stand-up surfing really wasn't that big where I, when I grew up in Foster Tunkari. There were a few really good guys doing it. But the majority of people in the water, as I remember it, were or the majority of young people were bodyboarders. So there was a period, it must have been in the late 90s, when there was a couple of surfing clubs that set up, um, one just down the coast, 20 minutes at a place called Boomerang Beach, and they kind of kicked off their surf club um, and that then kind of took a few kids away and it gave I think it gave a few local dads the opportunity to not let their kids get on a bodyboard to begin with <laughs> so because I think a lot of a lot of what happened was that they were you know surfing dads who
0: yeah
2: the only club in town was a bodyboard club so they took them to that and they just kind of like they' were were—they were a little bit kind of stiff and not very comfortable about the whole thing because they're they're little boys on a on a boogie board and and they're surfers so I I I, I have these kind of memories they might be painted a little bit um just of dads who were kind of like there to let their kid have some fun but also kind of like you know fuck he's on a bodyboard what the fuck (laughs) so it's um when the surfing clubs started that that definitely saw a pretty dramatic uh shift in the initial stages of people not joining the bodyboard club and then you know like it just kind of it kind of went through its own kind of journey and it it has a lot to do with the parents around at the time. Well, how much time are they willing to put into it? Um, I've been really fortunate in life to have parents who have always wanted to lean in to anything their kids have done. So my dad, you know, he became the secretary, president and treasurer probably all overnight in the local bodyboard club. You know, my mother used to come along too and she'd calculate all the scores from the judging sheets and stuff like that. So they, you know, they always wanted to make sure us kids um, had they just wanted to get involved? So, my brother and I were in the bodyboard club. My older brother so but, you know, they were they were very much fixtures of that for many years. And then when we were a little bit older and moving on in life, you know, they kind of drifted away from it. So it always has to do with the parents around at the time and how much time they have available for it. So presently, um, there's probably I, I think there's probably forty or fifty members, and it's having a bit of a resurgence, um. The, the family or the families who are uh, looking after it at the moment are doing a really great job and um, they're really cool people. And I think that um, there's also a few older guys kind of getting back into it as well off the back of, I think this VBC yeah. um, resurgence of interest. So there's a few older guys, a couple of young girls. There's actually a lot of young females doing it now where I live. And um, that's really cool too. That's really positive for the sport. Mm.
0: Um, I know that you, you, well, being Australian, I'm South African, a lot of our initial background comes from nippers or junior lifeguards. Um, yeah, I know yeah. that you, you were a, a nipper. Um, yeah. How did that influence your, your kind of relationship with the ocean as, as you were starting out?
2: Yeah, there's a few. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely foundational. Um, to my confidence levels in the ocean and and those confidence levels from a very young age. um you know I was I was at Chopu when I was fifteen. um, and that scared the shit out of me, but I I I I was okay and confident enough to put myself in that situation because... Of my background, and I do put a lot of it into that nippers period. I was I was a nipper um, from the age of oh, I mean I must have been five. I've got a photo of me doing the beach flags at five, yeah. and uh, winning too. <laughs> and <Obviously>. um, <laughs> but you know, like taking it very seriously and trying to yeah. to really get into it. And and when I was probably I must have been yeah like early. I must have been 12 or 13 when I really took it quite seriously for a while and was training every day um, on the board specifically and um, doing a lot of board paddling and racing and and actually you know competing at that as well and I really loved it and there was a there was a couple of times um, in my teens where I kind of drifted close back to it but there just came a point and it's it's quite it, you know so a answer the question. Super foundational to learn about the waves, to learn about um, the ocean and the dangers in it, and to be on board craft and swimming and mm-hmm. dealing with that plate, that space from a very young age, and being just immersed in the salt water every Sunday with a lot of other kids. Mm-hmm. Super foundational. The problem, though, I think, and I had this discussion with um, a mum who's now involved in nippers with their young kids the ocean was really a place to be feared i felt um when i reflect on it in the surf life saving space if you and even if you think about the surf life saving space and the yeah. bodyboarding surfing space bodyboarders and surfers are going out there to have fun yeah surf life savers are there to save lives in a dangerous space so there's this little problem um with surf life saving and i feel like there's not it's too much about the risks and it it seems like you know they talk about rips be don't get in that rip you know you got to know what to do when yeah. you're in that rip now i was talking to this mum the other day and she's taking her kids board paddling every morning like what i used to do as a kid and and i kind of said there was something about a rip came up and i was like you know in all fairness we look for rips to yeah. get out the back quicker and that's a tool in the, in the toolbox of, um, you know, of a, of a surfer or bodyboarder who's out there to catch waves. They want to get out the back quick and they want to, you know, not use all their energy doing it. And then we want to have fun. And I said, it's really funny because in surf life saving, you're just told to fear them and avoid them. And I said, you know, maybe it would make sense to, you know, get your kid to use the rip next time they're in the board race to get out the back quicker with less energy being expended. And, um, but then make sure they don't go in the rip on the way back in, you know, then they won't win, you know, cancel itself out. So it was just a funny chat that only happened last week to, to kind of remind me of what the kind of downside is of that surf life saving space as well. And I just think there's also a cultural difference in Australia, which I think is really interesting and maybe the same in South Africa or other places. But the surf life saving club system in Australia doesn't always seem to be a, staffed by people who are actually water men and water women yeah you know like it, it's almost like a country club in some respects like yeah. and and you know you go to a place like hawaii where the lifeguards are hawaiian polynesian gods um you know <laughs> they they've got abs yeah. popping off every surface you know they're, they're they're ready to go they literally save lives on a daily yeah. basis over the um the North shore winter season. And, you know, there's this kind of crossover between surfing and saving lives. There's not this kind of barrier. And I feel like in Australia, there is, there is this barrier and it's very, you know, I met myself and a few of the fellas that live around here. Now we're kind of just like, Oh shit. Like why, why aren't we in that club like Hawaiians are part of their life saving space. yeah. And it's just this interesting thing. There's, I think there's just a cultural barrier there now which I I hope can be eroded, but I don't really know if the people with the country club mentality are going to like it too much. If too many of us start hanging out So, long-winded answer to the importance of nippers, but um, yeah, it's, it's a funny space. Like it's a, it's a really interesting question about, yeah. How useful is it? It's definitely useful. How, how how much better could it be? It definitely could be a lot better. Um, Definitely. Yeah
3: so like besides the nippers obviously we're talking about clubs like how important would you say bodyboard clubs are in general at the grassroots level
2: yeah i i think they're absolutely um pivotal because um particularly like there's a few reasons why you join a bodyboard club as a kid um there's the social element. You get to meet up with people who share an intre- like a similar interest, every month. Uh, that's what kind of happens around here. But then, for some, they want to, they want to win. They want to compete and they want to come first and they want to enjoy that feeling of of um, excelling at their sport. And I think for me, it's funny in my my own life. I was definitely the one who just wanted to win as a kid, it wasn't so much a social exercise. It was just more about like, fuck, I want to beat that fucker over there and I don't want to come second and I don't want to lose this heat and I definitely want to be in the final. Um, so for me, I was hyper competitive. Um, and so, yeah, I probably pissed off more of the other kids um, than I made friends. But now in my older years, I, I do think it's a super cool social outing um and i i get my own kick uh and this didn't happen when i was a kid but today there's more of an more of a focus on facilitating enjoyment in the water and i had the opportunity uh maybe a month ago and you know like i i guided um there was some kids the grommets or the under 13s or whatever they were going out for a for their heat. And I paddled out with them as a guide and kind of talked them through a few things, you know, which waves to look at, you know, paddle faster, you know, quick more to the left, you know? So um, I, yeah, there was one young girl who um, she'd lost a lot of confidence and I managed to kind of ride the waves with her and make her feel comfortable again. And she came in all excited and her mum was really happy. And, you know, these are the little things that um, I never really understood as a 10, 11, 12 year old when I just wanted to win that this little girl just really got a kick out of getting um, some help and catching one or two waves. Um, She actually made it through her heat because she caught a few more waves than the other boys. And so she was stoked and, and yeah, so these club environments, I think that they can be so positive. Um, If, if, if they're done well, I, I don't think all clubs do, the Like, you know, there's there's different ways of running clubs. Not everyone does the same thing. That's what's interesting about this sport. You know, there's no, I don't feel like there's a standard way of running a bodyboard club um, around the world. Whereas, you know, you look at other sports like football, rugby union, there's a standard way that that sport operates. And so, yeah, it's an interesting um, aspect of bodyboard clubs is that there, there are no uniform rules um, you know, or ways to break it down that mm. are kind of, um, that are international. So I don't know if you need it or not, but to me, it's interesting that we've all got our own ways to do it. So mm. yeah, they're, um, super important for kids. Just be a part of a tribe, um, get gets stoked. If you want to be the one who wins stuff and wins medals, great. Uh, like it's good to have that outlet. Um, if not, just good to hang out.
3: So a question I had lined up for you later on, but it seems now's the time to ask it with everything that's sure. been said up until this point is what's more important, smiles or egos?
2: Oh, I thought you were going to say winning. Or lo- I was about to say winning. Um, <laughs> smiles or egos? Oh, look. A, at it's a, not a, a, a club level. Like, do you, do you know what would? Yeah, say? yeah. Of course, it's smiles. Of course, I. Of course, like the the right thing to say right now is smiles. But I'd hate to. There's something, I think. There's something that can be lost. I think you can have both. I think both is the answer that I have to that question because. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Both. I feel like it needs a bit of clarification, but. <laughs> I think it goes into what I've already said is that, you know, like there's no, if you're doing it just for smiles, I feel like you're probably going to get to a certain point in your writing where you're going to hit a limit, like a ceiling. I think if you're, and when you say ego, I don't think it's a bad word or anything like that. I think it's just, you know, nourishing the self in through a competitive outcome or whatever. Um, I think that, it's super important that there are these opportunities to win and lose something um, as a young person. Um, I, I always get a little bit, I don't know, but it's, I'm a competitive guy, so maybe that's how I look at things. But um, I just get a little bit worried sometimes when the competitive instinct gets kind of dampened in some of these spaces because, you know, I'm. Ian Campbell might have had a different answer to this question too, or maybe a similar to me, but he's a very competitive guy in, in his sport, but he's also a guy that smiles. So, you know, like, and you know, when I, when I'm competing with him, uh, if I'm in a heat with Ian Campbell, I want to beat him. Like that's, that's my goal, but me and him smile a lot within the, the construct of the competitive environment, you know, like we have a good chat. If we're in the water and he's destroying me, I'll start to, heckle him and laugh about it you know and that's what happens most of the time like it's definitely the majority of times Ian campbell's beating the shit out of me at a comp so um there is a lot of fun that you can smile and get the ego bit at the same time i think in this in these competitive environments
1: that's a good answer
2: good answer thanks
1: so sorry about my uh me um
2: you dropped off there. My, Did you go and yeah, have yeah. five more beers while we weren't looking or what? Yeah,
1: just to get me uh Dutch courage.
2: Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I have
1: been having a bit of a problem with my internet and it just randomly boots me off chat. So oh,
2: okay.
1: if I do have uh, you disappear. back. Yeah, thank you. If I do disappear, you know it's not um because I got scared. Not personal. Yeah. <laughs> do you want me to uh follow up with the next question?
0: I, I think you've missed your chance, Mike. Oh, We're on oh to the what next, was these questions? Next, oh, no, oh, no. Now, we've covered all of Mike's questions. He's uh have to come back in in the next round. <laughs> <laughs> Be like, oh, no. <laughs> um, so Josh, my first real exposure to you was a, a actually a picture of the back of your head. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you just had a, a, a tasty run in with the reef at a reef. Oh, shit. that picture yeah. was um all over. All over social media. Yeah, what um, was I talk to us about that wave and, and that situation? Like, what what were you experiencing? What what were your yeah. thoughts sort of going into it? How did it how did it play yeah. out? And what was that what yeah. went on there?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You've asked a you've you're going to open a you've opened a can of worms on that question. <laughs> um There's a bigger picture to all everything, right? Um On the face on the surface level, you could just say Josh took off on a wave and tried to do something pretty cool and got absolutely fucked up for it and was pretty lucky that he was wearing a helmet. Um, and that's one story. Um, I wish I just landed that air reverse a lot nicer in the flats like Alan Munoz does and I would have just ridden straight onto the beach and everyone would have gone, oh, that's pretty cool, and then they would have forgotten about it, you know, <laughs> like it wasn't, you know, it wouldn't have had some super exceptional wave I just would have got a few nods from my peers and you know that's that's cool you know but because there was this carnage involved and this kind of real near miss like aspect to it um, it became a bigger thing and, and the bigger story behind the story is that you know last year was a really tough year for me on a personal level where I, I went through a separation from my wife um, and that trip through South America was a bit of a break or a, you know, a creation of space in our relationship and it it wasn't looking good and it since has ended. Um, I probably had a bit of a death wish in that moment. Um, not a death wish. I shouldn't say it like that, but you take bigger risks if you feel like you've got nothing to lose and, and that's really helpful. Um, in a competitive frame. Like, so when, when I put on a com- competition Jersey, you, you do things that you're not normally going to do if you're just free surfing. And that's where, for me, that was a dumb wave because I I was just too angry and reckless and yeah, it wasn't some, um, and it was a big risk. It was, it was like, you know, when you, when you're riding um, a Rika, you kind of know, What you know what the end section's like it's not a secret um you know that if you're going to hit that and you know if there's a section coming at you and it's pretty big you know like you're going to be landing in like 20 centimeters 30 centimeters of water so it's kind of just like well what are you doing um yeah i don't know at the same time yeah so there's that aspect to it where i feel like i was probably a bit more reckless on that trip um, a bit angry and kind of like, who cares? I'm just going to hit this anyway. Um, and I did. But then also in that moment too, you know, there's that other aspect where I was like, fuck, this is a sick looking ramp. I'm going to hit it. Um, and not even think about what the landing, you know, what happens on the landing. So yeah, that was, you know, that's a bigger, there's a bigger story, obviously, that I've shared there that I've probably never shared before, but um I definitely, you know, the experience is really funny too, because you know, you get this big wipeout. you know, my wetsuits torn to shreds. My helmet's got like the deepest cuts in it I've ever seen. And you know, that, that gath helmet say like, I don't know, I don't know what would have happened if I wasn't wearing a helmet and maybe I took the risk because I was wearing one. So I don't know if I would have gone that wave without the helmet. So I don't know what impact that had on the decision as well. But um you know there's all this carnage and the funny thing is is that you know my profile in bodyboarding is is at the very low end in terms of um instagram followers and people who want to like see what josh does you know ian and the the, the big guys you know they've got the tens of thousands of followers and you know i'm just cruising along with my 4000 right now and they're they're all mostly friends and family um it's it's funny to see how social media can work uh in a tragic almost tragic circumstance so i got a shitload of followers off the fact that i nearly killed myself at a recap and that is disturbing to me like where were they when i did a nice role (laughs) you know like you know so it was a really interesting um it was a really interesting kind of uh, look into social media and what actually is going on sometimes. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it was a bit weird to be honest. And I was kind of just like, Oh wow, is this what I had to do to get people to pay attention? Like, are you for real? So, um, yeah, that was a really interesting, um, experience to see what happened with the followers. Once the, (laughs) um, once the carnage, the viral carnage, you know, got out to everyone. So yeah. Yeah. A good, go. it was a positive experience though. I think it's good to have those near misses as well. Like it's good to, I think it shook me. Um It definitely happened in a context. And now when I look at it, I go, yeah, that's what was happening, you know? And so I'm pretty grateful for those opportunities still. I wouldn't probably change the decision. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything differently. Um And it was, um Other than just land the way, land the air reverse and ride out to glorious applause. That's all I'd change.
1: (laughs) Would you you do it in a free surf though?
2: That was a free surf. That's what the problem was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that wasn't (laughs) in in the comps and that's what I mean. And like, that's why it was dumb. I mean, it was the day before, it was the day of the check-in and I walked down with Louie. I had a, like that whole trip, even though it was within the context of a, of a relationship breakdown, that was the best trip I've done, you know, and, and that whole second half of last year was probably the best, um, probably the best six months of my whole bodyboarding careers year, you know, part one and part two, you know, like it was so good. I spent lots of time with Louis Finnegan, um, lots of time with George Humphries and um, Davis Blackwell. And, you know, I just felt like I was part of a, part of a crew, for the first time in a really long time. And those fellas um, were definitely the right people to be around in that context, but also to push my writing to a new level. Um, and yeah, I can't thank them enough for that, but yeah, that was a, um, that was a, that was a free surf. So that's why I was freaking really dumb. Just day before the comp. So you know, I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to compete afterwards and, you know, I'm waiting there at the emergency room, getting jabbed with all kinds of needles, getting, you know, Louis had to dress my wounds every afternoon after that, you know, he'd come in and scrub them clean and redress them. And then I'd put all the plastic on me and wetsuit and then compete. And, you know, I still, I still did all right. I finished ninth. I was, you know, that seems to be the result I get at Arika. I finished ninth every single time I compete there, which is still I'm, I'm always happy with it, but it's, um, yeah, it didn't stop me from doing okay in the comp, but definitely, uh, you know, it's a good memory now. It's a very good memory actually.
0: Mm. Um, so so you've obviously mentioned that you were wearing a a, a gath or helmet at the time. Yeah. What do you think it the reluctances of the bodyboarding and surfing community not to wear headgear? It's kind of a strange, every other sport it's widely mm. accepted, but mm we just don't do it um do you think there's well,
2: something in there i'll take it back to alex's earlier question and say smiles or egos and i think <laughs> this one's about egos <laughs> it's um it, it's a it's a it's an ego i i do believe and i may ruffle a few feathers when i say this but i think that some people don't think they look cool when they're wearing it and i understand that i feel like I had the same thoughts. I used to have a gaff when I was a kid, my mum and dad maybe made me wear it. Like that was the deal sometimes because they were worried about surfboards hitting me in the head. Um, never really happened maybe once, but it was never going to be a problem. But yeah, when it came to surfing reef, um, even for many, I mean, for many years, you know, like a lot of guys don't wear helmets and particularly at a place like pipeline. And I think, um, which, which is notorious for knocking people out and them dying. <laughs> like, so it's really interesting. Like in the one way, the one wave on earth where there's a reputation for hitting your head and not getting back to the surface. Um, still the majority of people out there aren't wearing helmets. I will say though, that this year um, before the world changed forever in March, when I was in Hawaii and, and your boy Ian Campbell had a glorious victory at pipeline, um there were a lot more helmets in the lineup i noticed and it was really positive because yeah that wave will get you um but yeah in bodyboarding i think I'd, well i mean i think part of my injury in eureka and the and the, the the way the helmet did save me a lot of guys saw that and i like oh fuck i'm gonna get one of those so maybe i gave them the evidence they needed um to understand that it's a very good decision to wear one and it doesn't really affect your performance or, yeah. Some people get annoyed because they feel like they're kind of closed in and they don't have that spatial awareness because their ears are all blocked up. But I don't know. I don't see it as a problem. And, and, I, and I wish more guys would wear them. Um, there was a female bodyboarder, Soraya, who uh, she took a really bad hit to her temple. Um, and maybe the, a gath helmet wouldn't have even maybe it would have covered it but she got a really bad slice down the side here at um ikike the comp before um arica last year and you know like she could have yeah it was crazy and she was going hard it was a sick barrel and she just hit the reef um so yeah i wish people i wish more people would wear them they're not a big investment it's nothing
3: yeah i was a welshman i wouldn't put my head in a A wallaby or a spring spring box scrum (laughs) without one, they tell (laughs) you.
2: I'm glad you finished that with like scrum because then I didn't know if you're talking about an actual wallaby for a second. I was like, wow, I don't know. I wouldn't stick my head in one either. But, yes, you wouldn't stick your head in one of those scrums at all. Um, Yeah, Um, it's just – I don't know. It should should be part and parcel. You see in surfing Owen Wright, um, after his head injury at Pipeline, he now wears a helmet – I even saw him out at snapper rocks earlier this year when I was up there wearing a helmet on a point break and beach break there. So I don't know, maybe he's still pretty sensitive with his head injury himself. Um, But yeah, I just, um, I think, yeah, when it came to the Fronton comp last year, yeah, I had the helmet on again. You, You just, you know, I think a lot of us, it reminds me maybe a little bit too about the attitude of things like, we learned to wipe out the best piece of advice I ever got bodyboarding was from Steve McKenzie bullet when I was going on my second Tahiti trip and I was freaking out cause it was going to be big. And, and I said, I was at a coaching thing. Like it was for this, um, they were doing this elite coaching camp for a few bodyboarders up at this um, site up in Queensland. And I got the call up to go on this trip with Ben Holland and um, Tyson Williams and uh, another really good bodyboarder named Matt Widar with Ian Stewart, who made the Oceanic Images um, films. And I said to Bullet, I was like, shit, man, I'm, I'm going to Tahiti. You know, like, what do I, do? how do I prepare for that? Like, I just don't even know how to prepare for that right now. And he goes, just go and pull into some closeouts and just wipe out and just don't hit the bottom. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah, like, seriously, just try not to let the shockwave blow you out and you lose control just try and wipe out well and i was like that's the most um (laughs) that's the kind of advice with the least amount of confidence building i've ever heard in my life at the time i was like what do you think i'm just going to get wasted on every wave but his point was and i think a lot of bodyboarders and surfers learn this over so many years is that there is a good way to wipe out and there is a really bad way to wipe out and that some of it is actually within your control as a rider and I think that there's still, you know, you can ask Mike Stewart the same question, and I think he will have an answer like that. He'll say, "Well, I, I don't have a problem with this, <laughs> you know, I don't need the helmet because I'm not hitting the bottom." Um, and maybe that is part of his wizardry as an ocean man, um, that he knows how to wipe out and not hit the bottom. So, yeah, I don't know if we'll crack it. I don't know if we'll change the um, approach. I don't think all of the riders on the top you know, at the top of the sport today on the tour and whatnot are of Mike Stewart's status to be able to wipe out like that. So I think a lot more of us should wear helmets for sure when we're riding some of these waves. Tell us about tension and specifically tension nine. <laughs> it's funny you say that because that was my... Mitch Roll... I spoke to Mitch Rollins yesterday about it and he goes, he goes, fuck, you remember that time in Portugal when you... When virtue sprayed all of the talcum powder in your face, and I was like, fuck, it was so aggressive. He goes, Yeah, it was really aggressive. And we we're joking about it literally yesterday on the phone. You know, it's a funny thing. That was my only feature in Attention Film, I believe. That's it. And, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like, yay. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't go on the right trips to get a better uh, run in those films. Um, that was pretty annoying. But the context of that is pretty funny because I went out and got hammered drunk in Sintra. Um, you know, it was before the Sintra competition. I don't know who. if you guys have ever been to that beach at Praia Grand it's a pretty average beach break and sometimes it turns on, but the Sintra comp is a fantastic comp because bodyboarding is celebrated to such a high level in Portugal and the people there are so passionate and I absolutely love the Portuguese bodyboarding scene. Um, but that comp is just kind of was just always this stop on the tour where we're like, okay, let's go and grovel at Portugal. And, you know, let's just wait for the big waves at you know, Shark Island or pipeline to really take it seriously. And um So I just got absolutely maggot this night at the opening kind of night. And I got to a point I was staying in some weird town. uh, I forget what the town next door was called, but anyway, I was staying at this other place and I got lost and I was just walking around with my backpack, like completely hammered and I was lost. And um, I ended up navigating my way, spoke no Portuguese, of course. I was like, must've been 20. And I, I got my way back to the comp site and I'm just slurring my words and just stumbling all over the place. And I remember these, the security guards who were looking after the infrastructure, they had like a, a, like a 44 gallon drum with fire. You know, they were having a little barbecue at like 4am or, you know, 3am. And they offered me like this steak sandwich and it was the most delicious thing I've ever eaten in my life at the time. And so I munged into this steak sandwich and there was this really fancy hotel on the beach at Program where, you know, the the, the the fellas who were earning a bit more money from bodyboarding at the time, they would stay there and you, you're not going to get lost. It's right there on the beach. The comp's there. The pool overlooks it, you know, you're at the comp. And uh, Sean Virtue and Mitch Rollins are sharing a, a room. And, you know, Mitch and I are very good friends and we've been, very good friends for pretty much all of my bodyboarding career. That's the one guy I've had the closest relationship with, I'd say. And he's a, he's an absolute legend. And um, so i tracked Mitch down in his hotel room, hammered drunk. And um, I'm like, I'm lost. I I need to sleep. And then I, I got into the, into the room and I'm a terrible snorer, particularly when I'm on the piss. So then I'm on. I'm I'm just hammered, passed out, snoring my brain out, and uh, virtue had had enough, and yeah, called Whitey in for the, for the uh, talcum powder straight up the, up the throat and into the sinuses, and um, yeah, that's the that's the story behind that story. Fucking did, didn't tickle like it was really <laughs> uncomfortable, and uh, you can see it's I haven't seen it in ages, but yeah, I wasn't happy about it, but um yeah my snoring's pretty notorious. Got a mouth guard though the other day, so I actually stopped snoring for the first time in my life about a month ago. It's a game no. changer. Yeah, I actually have <laughs> oxygen in my blood.
0: How does an Australian bodyboarder end up in
2: Sweden? Well, he hooks up with a Swedish woman and then he goes oh. there. <laughs> which is the story which is the story of all pretty much relationships of foreigners up there you know it's usually just a relationship that gets you started but um yeah whilst the Swedish um period of my life is now behind me in many ways I'm still a resident of Sweden and I still really love the country and I've have some really good friends there so um it's an interesting country to live in it's a tough one to live in um given the the extremes of the climate throughout a year but you know, there's some passionate surfers there and some really, really good people. Uh, that's where I got into my work life as well in a very real way, working in um, this kind of environmental and sustainability work around um, business and investment. And uh, those years working in that were very important to my development as an individual. And um, yeah, so it's a yeah, it's definitely not a place you go to for just fun. <laughs> you know, like you don't, you're not gonna go oh. I might go live in Sweden and try that out, but I was lucky. Um, yeah, went there for a woman, but made some great friends and, you know, I got to surf in some really interesting places as well. You know, I got up into the Arctic circle and surfed up in Lufthansa up there a few times and, you know, even got some waves in the Baltic sea, rode a bodyboard in the Baltic, um, once and yeah, they're pretty weak waves. So you don't really get much out of them, but, um, but, yeah, that's, what, that's how an Aussie ends up in Sweden.
1: Sweet, Yeah. What was Love Solar? Oh, Love Solar, that's an old one.
2: Yeah, that was a funny, that was part of that Swedish experience. I mean, that was a solar sharing kind of startup I worked on uh, with, a, with a dear friend of mine when we were at university there in Sweden. Um, we did that as a class project because we wanted to we had to do something about applying what we were learning in this master's program which was the um it was called environmental management and policy and we did that um we wanted to actually test out there's a lot of startup support services in the world today and there were many sweden was really leading the way at the time with business accelerators and ideation programs and you know pitch this and win that so we had this. Um, we wanted to test out how helpful was that system of business growth and support for an environmental idea. So, the solar aspect, the love solar aspect, really just came to me by looking around at the attitude of Swedes and how eco conscious they were. Um, but the fact that they were such a small population and were unable to really change the world so much from their position. And I said, well, I reckon Swedes want to get into solar, but the solar doesn't really work so well up there. It's getting better and better with the, with the efficiency of the panels and different approaches to it. But at the time, you know, rooftop solar, you know, whilst there were a million homes in Australia that had them, Sweden was barely able to get, get moving on it. So, yeah, the Love Solar thing was just about connecting um, those Swedish people living in these apartments and unable to put the solar on their own roof. Um, originally, the idea was to connect them up with people in really sun rich places around the world and just share the cost and benefit of that investment. Um, We took it through a few hoops in Sweden. And at the time it was a nice project for me to work on. Uh, I eventually sold it to another friend in Australia who's taken it on um, further and actually done a lot of really good work with it in Oz. But it was a really cool period to, to dabble in entrepreneurship, to win a couple of awards along the way for an idea, which was a cool idea. It was a little bit out of the box at, at that time, but it definitely is a thing that's kind of way more established now. And there's some really good um, some really good kind of similar community solar projects that are kind of on a similar wavelength that are happening. Um, there's a good one in Africa that's kind of letting people invest in African solar panels on schools and other kind of buildings. And um, there's some community ones now in Australia that are, a similar model model about everybody kind of owning the panels and sharing the love. And that's how the love solar name came up to anyway, sharing the love. Yeah. haven't thought about that in a while. <laughs> good. Um
0: you, um, you recently made some really interesting points um, on the ocean impact podcast about sustainability and bodyboarding, uh, uh-huh. where our boards come from, what materials yeah. are used. Uh, you also, you, uh, Obviously, were involved with the well, you you wrote an article. Or you wrote an article about the cork board with, uh, with yeah, Pride. yeah. Um, you seem to have championed the the concept of environmental innovation in our sport for some time now. Like, what yeah. moves have, do you have you seen that we've made forward in the last few years, if any?
2: Yeah, it's tough. Hey, um, I think that the reality of this the the craft that we ride is that um, it is. I really like Elon Musk, right? Everybody loves him. Um, he does a really <laughs> my girlfriend just popped ahead in the room just to make fun of me whilst I'm doing a podcast. Hi, darling. Um one thing I learned. He's also listening so bad, to him. Just, 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 I know, just, I know, I know. Tip of the cap, tip of the cap. He um he talked about going back to first principles uh when he approached doing the Tesla vehicles and when he approached SpaceX, his rocket company, right? And it, and he and it, and it stuck with me because it's all about like he he started those companies not by looking at other car companies and then just creating an electric version of what was already being done. He took it back to the basics of like how do we need to move and what are the basic you know, what are the elements? How do we build up from the the view that we want to move from A to B or we want to fly a rocket from here to the moon what are the steps from the very basic principles to to achieve that so it's almost like a full rework of the of the finished product from from the very basic elements so i feel like bodyboarding and the creation of the craft needs to go through the you know the elon muskification of its production cycle and and if someone can can take it strip it back to its first principles about okay what do we need this board to do and and then ask the question of okay what are how do we achieve those outcomes i think that we might be able to change it fundamentally um but nobody's doing that work right now but that's kind of the work that i think needs to be done um if we want to look at sustainability uh, and I think inherently, when you start a project like that from first principles, sustainability is in the mindset from the start because you don't start creating something that has uh, a material input that is going to um, a be a, a risk of supply because that's what's happened since the pandemic as well now, right? Like you can't just rely on supply chains like you used to because the world shut down and we couldn't, we still can't make things or repair things the way we used to. I tried to get a bike fix the other day. They're missing one little part, cannot find it on the country <laughs> in Australia, so, you know, like there's problems. Um, but when you take that sustainable mindset from the beginning when you're looking at first principles, I think that you then factor in every aspect of what do, what's the material input, what's the lifespan of that input, what do I do with that input when it becomes um no no more use in its current form and then you find a way to keep doing that circular approach to the product and that's how you know Elon musk created a rocket that flies itself back to a landing pad and he reuses it again you know because he wanted a sustainable loop on his on his thing so um i think bodyboards need to do that now i've you know i talk a lot to a lot of people um I talked to Mike Stewart about what he is trying to do. I talked to Mitch about what he's trying to do. Um, you know, I've brought it up with Ben Player. I've brought it up with um, also some of the guys at Pride. Um, really nice guy, Seb. And I think Pride is leading the way in many ways, like because they've taken some of these steps to, you know, push out a cork board. Mind you, there is a guy in New Zealand who does cork boards and they look pretty cool and I've still got to order one from him. Um I think that it's interesting to go with cork. It has obvious flotation benefits and things like that. Um, but you know the, the the basic the basics of the board are still the same, right? Like the the internal structure is a foam core. I think Pride's now using a partially recycled core, um, so they're reducing the amount of you know virgin materials that go into it. Um, I think that that's one aspect, but you know it's all a bit surface level. You know, it's all a bit superficial. I think that if they really, if a company or a brand wanted to really strip it back to its very basics and rebuild the board, maybe they'll do it in a different way. Why do you need a deck skin that's different to the core? Is there a way to create a core that has a feeling of a deck on the top? Is there, you know, is there a way to reduce, you know, the need for certain things? And, you know, is, is the core structure really the core structure we need or has it just been this evolution from a point? I I don't know the answer, but if we strip it back, we might find new ways to make these things. Um, I think there's also, um, there's also been some good efforts already around kind of circular economy and the whole idea around board sharing. So body board as a service, not as a product. I think there's more work to be done there, you know, like, I don't see why a brand couldn't just have a subscription model on a bodyboard and just say, you, you pay, let's say found boards, you know, you pay a hundred bucks a year and you get access to boards and you can, we'll leave one, we'll leave a bunch in Hawaii. We'll leave a bunch in California. We'll leave a bunch in Australia, Europe, travel without a board, turn up, get the board you need, write it, put it back. You know, I think, if that was a model that was developed further, you would find that board manufacturers would make boards that would be stronger, you know, they'd be more resilient. They'd be able to be bashed around a bit more, you know. So these these models are all out there. They're being used in other brands. Like there's other brands that do product as a service. Um, bodyboarding can definitely explore that. Um, but, yeah, looking at the cork thing, I know um, in Portugal there's a there's an abundance of cork. And um, there's a lot of residual cork left over that's not very high quality. So they can, um, there's a big, there was at least, I know, a a good supply of that material. But whether it's kind of, you know, who knows if it's really the highest performance thing and that's the other factor, right? We want boards that are going to make us go fast and we want to have them last a decent amount of time, but we want them to be fast, flexible, not too flexible, flexible. But, you know, like there's all these factors. We're so particular. So um, it's going to be really hard to move people away from what they know. But I think that if if someone went on the journey from the first principles, I think we would find new ways of doing all of it, which would be more sustainable by default. Okay, so let's talk about the World Tour and your relationship
1: (laughs) (laughs) and your relationship with it. You competed yeah. on the tour until you twenty twenty-three, mm. then retired from the competition, but have mm. since returned to competing. Mm. What are the most notable changes since you're back, mm. uh, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, I think the the most notable change is that I left the sport, earning a, earning a a decent well, you know, an amount of money that I thought was all right at the time um, from Nomad and Human Shoes and they were great sponsors and they really did their utmost to support me at the time, but I left <laughs> and uh, in, in, in not a good way. Um, and when I came back, I realized that that money I was earning was actually really good today. And so income levels have frozen. Or or stagnated in bodyboarding. Um, sponsors don't pay as much as they used to, and riders are still doing the same amount of work for the same for re- for less money, relatively speaking. Um, and that shocked me because when I was an outsider looking in, I assumed that you know, like, because there's all, oh, a baby's joined. That's cute. <laughs> we have got a child on the um, podcast now. Um, oh, who
1: says hi? Hey. Mm-hmm. Arlo,
2: oh, that's my nephew's name. Oh, cute! Good on you. G'day, Alo. Um, yeah, the um, the income levels just not being uh, they just hadn't grown, and if anything, the amount of money you know the the twenty grand or so I was earning back in the early two thousands, twenty grand today is a is a is a really decent salary in bodyboarding from one sponsor. So that's wild because 20 grand in 2000 is not the same as 20 grand in 2020. So, you know, I don't know what the inflation rate is, how I calculate that right now for you off the top of my head, but it's definitely not, you know, it's definitely means that income levels have definitely dropped significantly. So that was shocking. Um, and I feel like, and I, you know, I came into it and I was kind of a bit jaded immediately because I've, I'd heard, I was hearing the same things about how to grow the sport that I'd been hearing when I was, you know, 23 and walked away, um, you know, more extreme venues, Oh, you know, we just got to do this and someone's going to give us this big bit of money and it's all going to work out. It's like, this is the same stuff I've heard before. And I'm, I'm amazed that this is still the narrative about how does growth get achieved? Um, so that was a bit shocking. The thing that was still great. And this is a bit of a debate at the moment, but, I think the riding—I was so worried about turning up to the first contest, um, particularly in in Eureka. Like I was really nervous because I did know I had very little preparation. It was just me wanting to get back involved and getting back involved the only way I knew how, which was to compete. Um, and I just said to myself, "All right, I'll just rock up and compete again, and I'll just do who knows, you know." And when I turned up to Brazil, I got knocked out in the trials and I was like, oh fuck, this is a bad idea. And then, um, and that was on a beach break. And then I was going to Eureka and there was this swell prediction that it was going to be, you know, fifteen feet. And I'm just like, oh, I've fucked up here big time because I haven't been in a wave over six feet in 10 years. And I'm about to get absolutely humiliated and, you know, I was freaking out on an ego level, but also on a physical kind of stress level. I was like, shit, I don't think I'm physically ready to do this. Um, as it turns out, it wasn't so bad. And, and as it turns out, I learned that there was a few things inside of me that I could, um, I, I knew how to bottom turn still, and I knew how to do it in a big wave. So I could get a barrel and that worked. Um, but the, in the lead up to it, I'd just been watching these clips of like Jacob Romero doing the biggest invert I've ever seen. Um, looking at Ian and Jared doing huge backflips, you know, into the flats, and you know, just seeing these guys do the craziest aerial stuff that I wasn't used to seeing in the previous version of my career in bodyboarding. And I was like, I can't do any of that. Like, that's gonna that that is death you know like that's going to break me in half so full credit to the to the generation that i that i kind of cruised into because they are so extreme with the aerials you know and they, they basically just picked up what jeff hubbard jeff hubbard was the only one really doing that level of aerial kind of craziness back then so yeah it was pretty interesting to just be like shit these guys really put their bodies on the line and that is um, definitely something that's a little bit different today. Um, and yeah, super competitive heats. That year when I came back, Ian Campbell just destroyed everyone and won everything. And I've, you know, I have full respect for him as a competitor, as, an, as a guy, as a mate, because yeah, he really dominated that year. It was super cool. Sweet. So one final question, because you
0: uh, need to shoot off in a second.
2: But, yeah. Um, where are all the Aussies? they're all working (laughs) they're all they're all doing what is right for their own financial futures and they're all heaps better than most others around the world at bodyboarding still um i don't include myself in that group I had a heat the other day in a local club competition. It's called the David Goose Gosby Memorial and it's a memorial contest that's been going for a very long time. It was one of Epo's really good mates um growing up and he passed away at I think it was at Lighthouse Beach. And um so they got a memorial contest and it's and it's this event. Um I had a heat in Port Macquarie about three weeks ago against well I had Chase O'Leary in the first heat. he won, I came second, I managed to just beat Shaden Schrader, which was a miracle because he was absolutely ripping. The next heat I had Charlie Holt, uh Jones Russell, Brody Brockman, and Sam Bennett, and these that was the most competitive heat I've had like it's up there with the most competitive heats I've had in years um you look around like, and these, like, and these guys are still young guys. They're not like old over the hill guys. These are guys in their prime of bodyboarding and they absolutely rip. They've got jobs. they got, some of them have a kid, you know, or two, you know, like they've got um, responsibilities back in Australia and they, and you know, the, the, the sponsors, I don't know what their sponsorship deals are, but you know, obviously they're not earning all that money that used to be around. So, you know, you look, I, I I kind of don't look at like Winnie, Winnie, you know, like Mitch Rollins has had a bit to say about this lately. but And and I don't think that um, guys like, I don't think that these guys are necessarily going to win world titles because that's a special bunch of elements that come together. Um, and it's not only about your abilities when it comes to winning a world title or, or getting that kind of glory. It, there's so much that goes into it. And you can ask Ian Campbell about that and Jared Houston and Pierre. They'll tell you that there's a lot more going on there. Um, but in terms of just pure ability and talent, there are still so many bodyboarders in Australia that could be absolutely pushing the limits on the world stage, but they just don't have the money to do it. And it's the structure of the tour. Um, it's about, I think it's about a bit of a setback in the economics of bodyboarding in Australia, but for me, it's not, I I, I feel like, and I've said this in other kind of forums but having a world tour is a really terrible idea for for a sport like bodyboarding because it comes down to it comes down to talent of course first and foremost but it also comes down to your ability to finance that effort um and that is an unacceptable um kind of situation in my opinion if you've got a sport that's so small and niche and so strong on its small community level to me, that's the strength of bodyboarding that isn't being understood by the by the powers that be at the top. Like I would love for someone in the Welsh, and I've discussed this with Mike Stewart specifically and others. I would like lo- I'd love to have the sport go back to one world championship in one place each year, and that world championship moves around the world to different places. And you, you have events that get um, Qualify you to get to that world championship event, and using the Welsh Bodyboard Club as an example here, I would love if a Welshman was competing in the local bodyboard club, and there was a pathway between that bodyboard club and Pipeline World Championship or Fronton or Eureka, and I want I'd love to hear I'd love the story of that Welshman winning the. The Welsh club, and then getting to the European Championship and winning that, and qualifying through to the World Title, and blasting through the pack and being a world champion—I love it. It's completely equitable. It's um, it's inclusive. It's it's playing to the strengths of bodyboarding because it came from that thick grassroots which um, we all know is there, like you guys have a club in Wales which has a lot of passion at that level, but, and, and, you know, but then it gets diluted as it goes up. It just kind of gets wishy-washy. There's no pathway to the, to the future a little bit there. So for me, that's how bodyboarding needs to be. And any other way of doing it is denying the fact of, A, nobody's got any money. <laughs> you know, this is not, you know, it's not viable. A few people do have some money and that's cool but you know if if you wanted to just do it so that you could afford to do it you just do a tour with eight people on it you just take the top eight and you'd have a world tour with those eight guys great do that but you know as it stands it's kind of a to you know the best analogy i can come up with with the world tour kind of idea at the moment it's kind of like the pyramids of egypt you know like we look at the pyramids and we go oh look at these majestic pyramids like the, this is just remarkable stuff. Seventh wonder of the world. What we don't think about are the thousands of slaves and the thousands of people who built the fucking things. And I feel like sometimes bodyboarding is like that in that you know we don't think about the the sixty people in the back of the pack who put their time and money in an entry fee, in turning up you know, they, they they are part of the glory that holds up the few at the top. And I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that. You know, like it's, it's not cool. Now will I compete in the world tour. Um, again, if the world comes back to normal, I have a seeding. I finished seventh, 17th last year. I will have to assess my finances at the time and see if it's something that I can justify. Um, I had a unique circumstance the last three years where I was able to, travel and work at the same time and get paid really well from my job. So I was, I felt like a sponsored writer the whole time, even with no sponsors. So for me, it's a question of that financial factor again. And and if I'm in a position to do it, but do I want to win a world title? Do I want to be in that race? Yes, I do. Because I, it's the one thing I've always wanted. Um, but you know, it's, I don't agree with it as the way You know, like I, I, if, if everyone could understand that I would be the happiest, that would be the legacy I'd be most happy with in bodyboarding. I don't care about, you know, and I'd, I'd really like to not remove the legacy of the guy that got destroyed at Eureka and nearly died. Um, I'll be the guy that helped just try and make bodyboarding a bit more equitable, a bit more inclusive and not um, it's just a bit of a delusion. I think in many ways, I just think there's this idea that a tour has to be the way to be professional. And I think, you know, footballers, they, the world cup comes around every four years and we're fucking happy about it. I wish it happened every year. I'd watch it every time rugby union, every three years, you get a world champion. Like these things are normal. It's quite normal. Olympics are every four years. So yeah, if we had a yearly championship with a grassroots starting point and a glorious finish at the top i'd be so happy to see that that'd be a great day
3: it's a pretty complex answer i think the question was where are all the aussies where, yeah no i know, I know but yeah. the the reason is they're not <laughs> no, no, there because they're
2: they're bloody working you yeah, know yeah, like and it's no, and it's sad it's frustrating um, yeah and it's really frustrating
3: like you said a lot of very valid points here. a lot of good ideas like a around the world tour as well you even touched mm. on the pyramids which i visited <laughs> back in january <laughs> yeah. february this year um oh, and, and just, you i don't want to you know from what i was told there i don't want to pick you up on anything but apparently sure. they weren't slaves they were all oh, on okay. a pay- they were all on the payroll and cool. um, being the representative uh, representative for the riders on the tour uh, yeah, you probably be yeah. pleased to know they were the first people to start the trade union movement. I'm very happy back. about being corrected
2: on that. I'll take that correction. I'll um, take that correction. So I'll also say then, but like, you know, like we still don't really remember them. You know I think the oh, point yeah, is, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know, we don't pay attention to them. Like yeah. it's not, it's not about them. It's about the end product. And that's kind of the, oh, yeah, sure. that's the, that's the, maybe the point I was making, but thank you for picking me up. Yeah.
3: on that. No, that's so, um, so Josh, uh, you're an open book. Um, you know, we could speak for hours and hours. And I could, mm. I'd like to think that within the next year, we'll be able to wake you up for another one. Very conscious of time now. Um, we'd love to do another podcast with you. It's been awesome. Um, nah, I thank you enough for your time, but just give you a little bit of time now, as much as you want, just for those who might not know about the La Boogie podcast series. Just oh, okay, sure. it man.
2: No worries. Well, that podcast was just all about me trying to learn about what I missed, and it, it kind of was my way of being a part of the community again in the way I knew how, which is asking questions, um, having conversations. I'm a guy that loves chat, um, so yeah. So I just, I just started recording that on the run um kind of probably like you guys you just kind of like said oh let's do this because shit we should do it and it's not that hard um and it's and it's fun um so no the laboogie podcast is going well i think we cracked well we when i say we mitch rawlins helped me out on, along the way with uh he gave me an instagram account to use that he wasn't really using anymore and it had 6,000 followers on it already. And so that was a good boost to get the awareness out there about the podcast. But um, he um, he gave me a good leg up there. But the podcast is going really well. It's like up to nearly, I think it's up to nearly 80,000 downloads and um, a lot of passion in there, a lot of um, good memories now for me in bodyboarding. Like it's, it's a personal thing, you know, like it's not – I know that I'm producing a thing that I give, you know, everybody gets to enjoy it and listen and hear stuff, but I'm having a great time too, you know. Like I I got to sit down with Ben Holland the other day and have a really good discussion about his life and career. I got to sit opposite Spencer Skipper and go through things with him. Um these are great memories for me. Um and I'm sure you guys are getting a bit of a buzz out of this too, you know. Like it's you get to see, to see these guys Exactly yeah thing, man. it's a full-on buzz and it's and it's cool to acknowledge that i think that whilst i do produce something that i everybody thanks me like they go oh thank you so much for that and i'm just like i'm pretty fucking stoked without your thanks to be honest you know because i get to you know i get to have a chat to mike stewart so it's really cool so it's really cool so yeah anyone who wants to tune into it they can check it out on all the podcast apps and, and all that kind of thing it's pretty easy to find but um yeah, I mean, thank you guys for getting in touch and, and I'd love to sit down for another chat in the future and I just hope you guys can get back to having some competitions and stuff like that and, you know, the physical stuff that we're kind of missing and being deprived of in this moment. So, yeah, in the meantime, a digital yarn is is not a bad way to keep it all alive.
3: Awesome, Matt. We haven't even touched on wave pools. Like, do I mean, there's so much <laughs> more to talk about yet.
2: Well... People can, that's the final plug I'd like to do. You know, like I I tried the wave in Bristol. It was bloody such a cool experience. And we're trying to organise a a bit of a pool party with Mitch Rawlins and found next year in Melbourne. Um, We're trying to sell tickets to it now. So it's um, definitely any people in the Australian space who who want to try and support that. I think it's a really big part of the progression of your riding to, to get that access to the wave pools. It's just the repetition you can have um as you guys might know from your own experiences if you've been to Bristol, fuck you can get better so much quicker like it's it's wild you know when you've got the same wave happening yeah it's a it's a really special experience so yeah I can't wave pools short answer they're fucking awesome more of them get a membership, do whatever you can go to one practice just remember that when you're in the ocean you gotta like survive too. <laughs> that's the only <laughs> that's the only thing I'd say
1: that's that's music for his answer.
2: Oh, I love it. I I can't (laughs) say how much I love the, like how much I'm a fan. Like it's just, if there's more, we're all just, we're going to get better and better and better. And I mean, the thing that I've noticed as well, you've seen this in stand up surfing females getting access to good quality waves is actually really interesting too, because in the water, it's a male dominated space has been for years. I, I saw girls doing the best airs on surfboards I've, I mean, just crazy stuff and they would not have been able to get to that point so quickly if they were just doing this in the ocean and competing with annoying men, which I'm one of them. And um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a reality of the, of the space that, yeah, if you've got access to a thing, you can get very good at it very quickly.
3: So next time you're over here in transit or not, is a sash on? Is it at the, Mate, the wave in Bristol?
2: No worries at all. I will happily get myself to that wave again. It's so much fun. Sweet. All right, gents. I'm got to go to an osteopath and bloody get my back fixed so I can turn up to that wave sesh in the future. Sick.
3: <laughs> you're a legend.
2: Awesome. Uh, thanks guys. Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks for, for taking time. the time. Thank really so appreciate much for it. Us. Yeah, thanks no for worries at up. all. No worries at all. I look forward to um, listening into my ramblings later.
3: <laughs> Take care, Josh boy.
2: Cheers guys.
1: Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Care, boy. The Welsh Bodyboard Club would like to thank all the supporters of the club, Embryo, The Pet, Tafia, Bodyboard Depot, Slab Bodyboarding, Mixer Wetsuits, Bodyboard Holidays, Frank and Otis Brewery, Nukey Activity Centre and Biscuit Bodyboarding
0: remember these guys offer exclusive discounts to club members so please support those who support the club for any members listening that would like to get involved we're still running the meet the members series so please get in touch with either Welsh Body Board Club Instagram page directly or one of the committee members
1: for anyone that's not a member and would like to get involved please get in touch either through the Welsh Bodyboard Club website which is www.welshbodyboardclub.co.uk or through our socials Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you in the water soon.